There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. You know what I mean? It just doesn't compute, you know? The law is the law. Peter, this is in our hands. I mean, it really is. People were there. We will continue to raise our voices. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Good morning, Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan again until the end of this week and PJ will be back next week. Now, uh, we were talking last week a lot about our heat wave and we were being asked to conserve water and we had a downpour yesterday and unfortunately we saw pictures last night on social media of many places that had a bit of flooding. So, you know, it's typical of Irish weather from one extreme to the other. We saw flooding in places like Bandon and in Shannon and the poor guys down at Perry Street Market Cafe in Ringus Giddy were flooded out of it as well um, so hopefully they have some luck, I think they're closed today but uh, hopefully they'll be able to get back in business again tomorrow also today the government will be discussing guidelines later around weddings and how many people they can have at a wedding um, the current number is 50, it's hoped that that will be increased to uh, 100 um, and we also know that there will be 200 brides-to-be marching outside the doll as that discussion is going on are you getting married next month? Are you sick of all this confusion? Are you happy to have 50 people? Do you think 100 people is too many? Uh, we'll be discussing all of this later on in the show. 1850-715-996-0833-969696 are the numbers to get in touch if you want to comment on anything that we're discussing over the next three hours. Now, last night, Cork City Councillors voted to increase people's property tax payments by 9% next, next year. Um, it was passed by the majority of councillors and joining me now on the line is Fiona Falls Councillor Terry Shannon. Good morning, Terry. Fiona, how are you? I'm very well. Um, why did the majority of councillors vote for this increase? Hello. Hello, can you hear me? Hello? Is, is Councillor Terry Shannon on a bad line there? Hello. Hello, Terry, can you hear us? 
Okay, we might come back to Terry there in a few minutes. Just if anybody um, didn't hear that story, um, the, the, the City Council was voting on this last night. Um, the Chief Executive, Anne Doherty, had proposed an increase of 15%. Um, they were saying that it was needed for the budget for 2022 and it's uh, to help with various different amenities that people need around the city. Uh, obviously, um, like any increase like this, it was a bit of a heated debate in the in the chamber last night, or not in the chamber, because obviously it's all online now, but um, yes, it's uh, it, the, the vote was passed then, I think, by the majority of councillors, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour, some independents, I know the Greens wanted it to be increased by 15%. There was some opposition to it. Some of the councillors felt that people uh, don't really need to see a rise in property tax at the minute, especially after everything that they've gone through. Um, but I, I think we have Councillor Terry Shannon now on the line, do we? Good morning. Fiona, how are you? Sorry I'm very that. well. I know it happened. <laughs> Gremlins in the phone, Terry. But um, can you just tell me why the majority of councillors felt that it was necessary to increase this property tax? Well, I, I think, you know, in an ideal world, you know, people don't want to be paying tax at all. But I think what's important here is that we have aligned the uh, property tax that people will be paying now for the first time ever into local services. So, we had a, a, an increase in the base rate last year of 7.5%. So we put it to 9 So there's a 1.5% increase over last year, which would equate to between 5 and €10 Euro per house per year extra. But we will raise just uh, under about £1.975 And that money that's raised will be put towards local services. So, Like what? What ever, kind of local services well, are we talking well, about? Well, the first, thing, first time, for the first time ever now, this we will be allocating it to the five local area committees in the city. So each local area committee will get €310,000, which will be spent by the local councillors on footpath renewals or resurfacing or traffic calming or other amenities uh, in their area. So there's a direct link now for the first time between the money that's raised in our communities and the money that's spent in our communities. And we've also ring-fenced €425,000 for the sports capital grants. Again, you know, the sporting clubs of all disciplines, including, you know, bowls clubs in our community centres when they open, uh, there's 425000 to maintain the sports capital grants, which is very important for clubs who are, you know, sport, supporting young people and, and our elderly in terms of training and activity and that type of thing. So it's very important to say that while there is a slight increase over last year, it is directly going to be spent in our communities and people will see what, uh, what, what the money they're paying, where it's been spent. And I think that's very important because it is the, the, the method now of our, where some of our money will be coming in terms of uh, revenue for the City Council. And I think that's something that people will, will welcome, you know. Terry, a listener has been in touch um, with us here on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Kate says, did he just say they will be putting the money into local services now? Where were they going until now? Well, they were, but I mean, what happened with the local property tax was that it was put into general funding. And then we sat down at the budget time uh, to actually decide uh, what's going to happen. I mean, last year, the 7.5% increase went into just uh, for the council to break even. Now, this year now, it is actually ring-fenced for services that aren't provided 
generally by by the council, uh, you know, in terms of road resurfacing. We haven't had a proper roads program in terms of estate resurfacing or footpath renewals or traffic calming for about, probably 10 years. And we have a huge backlog of, of requests for that type of thing, upgrading and publicising areas where we're not funded nationally. That's where the property tax is being spent this year. So it is it is very much part of our desire to ensure that local services are maintained uh, and that money is ring-fenced as it was many years ago. So that's why this is happening. We also have other local services like you know, our, our, our maintenance grants and our community development grants and our arts grants. They all come out of general finance as well, general funding in the council. And, and there's no doubt, but at the budget meetings next September, um, you know, we're going to have to try and ring-fence those as well. But it's not going to be easy because obviously the COVID uh, um, crisis has put a lot of strain, not on just Cork City Council, but indeed Cork County Council and many other local authorities, indeed all local authorities around the country, you know. But Terry, the the pandemic and, and the last 18 years have been very tough on the public as well and a lot of people have lost their jobs, lost their businesses, a lot of people have been on the PUP. Do you think that now is the right time to be adding another bill onto them? I know you said it was only 5 or 10 euro extra a year, but that's an extra amount onto what they're already paying. Do you think that for this year you could have just left it as is? Well, leaving it as is would have meant a deficit in, in the in our funding. I mean, there were proposals to to uh, have a minus fifteen percent, uh, which would have taken four and a half million euro out of our budget. I mean, those councils who were who were proposing that, I'd like to know where the, the cuts were going to be made. Mm. You know, that's a huge uh, uh, cut out of what is a two hundred and twenty six million euro budget, uh, and just to leave it as 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 it is. Would have, would have had a deficit uh, of of uh, over one and a half million euro, you know. So the, the the issue we have is to try and balance the budget of the city. So, uh, and while I understand entirely in terms of what you're saying, uh, there are supports now for our businesses, and we've spent a lot of money supporting our businesses. We've spent a lot of money in the city centre with outside dining and uh, bicycle lanes and and free parking. That you know to encourage people back into the city. But this increase is between five and ten euro for the whole year so I don't think it's a huge ask but I think what people want to see is that the money that they're paying is being spent locally and I think that's our commitment and so for the first time uh, at the Fianna Fáil's request and supported by Fine Gael and for supported by the number of independents well, Terry, and uh, we've been to the in Greens touch as well, who who were looking for a fifteen percent increase. We weren't going to go that far, but the commitment is that this will be spent in suburbia, and, and that's the commitment, and on sports grants. And I think that's something that you know is, is important uh, uh, for us. You know, I hear what you're saying, Terry, but um, this is a reaction from a listener here to the Opinion Nine on Corks ninety six FM today. He's been in touch on oh eight six three ninety six or oh eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six to say, my name is Donal. A lot of us saved up during lockdown, but a lot of us are on PUP. It's never been a worse time for an extra bill. If people can't pay, they literally can't pay. What happens then? I'm a real person asking a real question. Yeah, if if you can pay, you can defer the uh, property tax. And that was always uh, the case. You know, you can defer it and pay it later on. And, and you can pay the property tax by installments on a monthly basis. Hmm. You know, so if, if you're paying and, you know, if someone is paying 30 euro a, a month, uh, you know, you're going to find it. It's it's in it's in pence, really, in terms of the extra bit that you're going to be paying. You know, as I say, the average will be between five and ten euro in the year 
over the over the 12 months. So it's not a huge amount, but it is a huge amount in terms of the effect that it'll have on Cork City Council's uh, finances and our ability, you know, when someone rings us about a bad footpath or about road resurfacing issues, or I get many calls, people looking for traffic calming, it means that we are now in a position to ring fence money to provide those services, which we wouldn't be able to do uh, otherwise. And yes. previous increases have gone into the general funding uh, and, and it hasn't been ring fenced. So this is, you know, money that is raised in suburbia to be spent in suburbia. But could you not look at your budget? I know you're saying there that you'd be operating on a deficit, but isn't the national government running on a deficit? Yeah, but I mean, you don't want to do that. That's not ideal. You know, and the question then arises, well, where, where do you cut? You know, and different people have different priorities. So, you know, we've got to try and break even. It is, it is uh, the, the law of the land that the council break even. So, you know, if we're not able to raise local money uh, lo- locally, then, you know, uh, we're going to be in a cutting scenario. And that's not ideal. And look, you know, we look at European countries and we're forever looking at the kind of Scandinavian countries as the, the bedrock of how to do things properly in terms of their health service, housing, the whole lot. You know, we pay very little local tax uh, uh, from from a European point of view, uh, and in Europe, people pay a local charge, whether it is called a property tax or a service charge or whatever, and then of course that is spent locally, and people mm-hmm. see the benefit of what they're what what the the tax they're paying. You know, so I think that's what we're trying to achieve here. So that, as I say, money that's raised, and it is small money, uh, but the, the money that is raised from suburbia is spent in suburbia and for the first time ever we've ring fenced that money uh, 1.97 million euro to be spent in our suburbs in the city and indeed in the transition area as you know we've an extended city now and so obviously there are greater demands there as well you know and there was a bit of an inequity in terms of the local property tax because obviously houses built uh, um pre uh, uh, 2013 weren't paying it uh, and local authority houses uh, aren't paying it at the moment. So, you know, there is, we all accept a certain inequity in that respect, but to change that, that's a national issue. Not, I mean, we obviously have to deal with what we're, what we're presented with in that sense, you know. Neve has been in touch. I thought the road tax paid for re- road resurfacing, or am I wrong? No, I mean, look, I, I don't know. That, that is something I've heard over the years. Look, we all pay road tax in our cars. That goes into general funding. I've never seen any money coming to Cork City Council for, you know, out of that fund for road tax. The fact of the matter is there are a couple of different road roads, uh, uh, funds in City Council. We have the traffic routes, we have the, the regional roads, the national roads. I'm talking about our estate resurfacing, which is, you know, housing estates in the city. There's no funding at all for, for mm. that you know, where footpaths need to be renewed. There's no funding coming from national government for that. So clearly, uh, you know, that has to be raised uh, locally and we are ring-fencing this money for that. Sports capital grants, which, you know, Cox City Council are unique in that we provide and have been had for many, many years sports capital grants, which are supports for local sporting clubs to provide, you know, for funding to do, you know, all weather pitches to do fencing uh, to protect their their uh, facilities for say you know indoor bowls clubs to provide an, buy an extra mat we provide funding for that and have done for many years so we're ring fencing 425,000 euros for sports clubs around of all disciplines uh, around the city again to encourage people to get involved in sports so the point I'm making is that 
you know, nobody likes paying tax, but I think if you see the, the tax that you're paying is being spent locally in your communities, well, I think you see the benefit for that. And as I say, the increase that we've agreed, 19 out of 31 councillors last night, mm. means that there's, a, there's an increase over last year of between, depending on your, your home, between 5 and 10 euro for the whole year. I hear what you're saying, and I know that it is going to a good cause, but I'm afraid it's not getting a lot of support here on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM by our listeners this morning, Terry. Maeve has been in touch to say this is an appalling tax. It puts so much pressure on people like my dad who worry about all the bills that come in under limited income. What do you have to say about that? Well, I suppose in the ideal world, nobody likes to pay tax, but everybody accepts that, you know, if you want services, then they have to be paid for. We We constantly... Uh, strive to ensure that whatever uh, uh, finances are being levied on people, that it is minimal and that, you know, you can see where the money is being spent. Mm. So, you know, I understand that. And there is, look, I think we accept to, uh, that there is an inequity in terms of the property tax and that it's levied on the, on the um, valuation of your property or your home. Mm. rather than your income. And there is no doubt inequity there. I mean, I'm well aware of people who are, you know, in advancing years on pensions who are paying, um, you know, for their property tax. Uh, But unfortunately, where City Cork City Council and every other local authority is concerned, you know, that is the national scheme that we have to deal with. And it is a matter for the doll to change that. We can only deal with what's before us. And, you know, what we don't want to be in a situation, Cork City Council, is cutting that would be uh, a retrograde step. So I think most people looking at this, and remember not everybody is paying property tax in the city. Um, a 5 to 10% or 5 to 10 euro increase na- for the whole year isn't a huge amount um, in, in the scheme of things, Fiona, you know. I know. You mentioned there about other local authorities and County Cork County Council voted last night to retain it at seventy at 7.5%. Um, do you know, like, do you think it looks bad that they were able to retain it at 75 and the City Council well, voted only, for it to be increased? Well, there's only, as I say, there's only a 1.5% difference between us, but the, the one thing you need to understand about Cork County Council is that they're one of the richest local authorities in the country. They have a massive rate base and they have a massive uh, uh, property tax base uh, as well. They are quite well off and are in a position to do that. Unfortunately, Cork City Council is not in a similar position. Uh, you know, we are a much smaller uh, local authority, uh, but we have an awful lot of demands. Remember, we provide an awful lot of, of, of facilities in the city that are used by those living in the county and there is no contribution by the county council to those facilities. I mean, if you look at the Opera House, for instance, a regional uh, 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 entertainment centre, that is run by Cork City Council. Uh, you know, there's a board obviously there. We've leisure world with our supporting mm. uh, facilities. A lot of these are used by, and, and they're welcome to it, obviously. But that is, these, these are funded by Cork to the Council for uh, people in the city and the county uh, 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 without any contributions uh, for the most part. Now, they do make a contribution to the Opera House. So, you know, look, I, well, I understand where people are coming from. But, you know, we as a city council can only deal with what we have in front of us. This is the national scheme. And uh, I think for the first time ever, people now will see that the money that they're paying, which they haven't seen before, will be spent in their communities. And the local councillors now in each of the five wards in the city will sit uh, um, at the end of this year and decide where the money that is uh, being allocated to their area will be spent, whether it will be in traffic 
whether it be in amenities and parks, mm. whether it be road resurfacing, foot pattern, all the issues that people come to us about on a daily basis where, you know, they see their infrastructure uh, uh, in peril. You know, we have an awful lot of uh, trip hazards on our footpaths. We have a, a, a budget of our a fund of mm. 20 million euro set aside for claims on our falls in our footpaths. Now, if we had that to spend locally, you know, you'd have pristine footpaths. So, you know, we've got to upgrade our local infrastructure. And so for the first time ever, as I say, the money that has been raised locally is being put in to the various wards to be spent locally to upgrade our facilities. Okay, Councillor Terry Shannon, thanks very much for explaining that to us. What are your own views on that? There's not a lot of love for the raise of the property tax here on the opinion line this morning. 1850 715 996 0833 96 96 96. Can we just talk? The opinion line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 996 on Cork's 96 FM. Now, I really hoped that this um, behaviour was going to stop but it appears it hasn't and it's the behaviour of cat calling. Katie Halpin Hill, good morning. Hi Fiona, how are you? I'm very well. Katie, what happened to you? Um, three men approached me and um, I was getting an ice cream actually. I was standing in the queue um, and three men approached me and began making um, crude comments um, and, and kind of cat calling me and just really unacceptable behaviour. Um, I naturally went on Twitter and just wrote um, a little bit about my experience and something I suppose I kind of centred around was the attitude of other men when this was happening. Mm. Um, This is something that I wasn't really expecting because obviously this kind of behaviour has happened to me before um, as has it, you know, with a lot of my friends. Um, But, you know, there were other men in the vicinity who um, I suppose didn't intervene when they probably should have Um, and I suppose that was kind of the main things that upset me more so than the actual cat calling itself. And were there many people in the queue? Was there many people around? Yeah, it was it was quite a crowded area, um, and it was quite upsetting as well because there were um, a lot of families and a lot of young children, and um, who obviously shouldn't shouldn't have to see that um, mm. at all. So, um, yeah, it was quite a crowded area. And were you? You must have felt quite intimidated, did you? Yeah, um, it was it was funny actually because the main thing that I felt was just embarrassment, which really looking back on it, I shouldn't have felt that at all, um, because it wasn't really my fault. Um, mm. But yeah, no, it was a bit scary and um, a bit embarrassing and just very very uncomfortable. I think for everyone kind of in the area and for me and yeah, just a very unpleasant kind of experience. And were they commenting on the way you were dressed or something? Because I saw there on Twitter last week um, an incident that happened with a girl who was at work and it was obviously hot weather and mm-hmm. um, men were commenting on her her clothes, like her shorts and her top. Was it something like that or was it something else? Uh, no, it, it was something else. Um, it was kind of comments just about like the ice cream and night night. Like I okay. would rather not kind yeah. of get into the details of it. Yeah, um, as it was, you know, quite crude. But um, yeah, um, although I do think that this weather kind of does um, maybe mm. maybe increase it a little bit or just make it more obvious. So. Um, yeah, but isn't it shocking that you can't just go out to your local shop and get an ice cream and enjoy it in peace without somebody commenting on it? I mean, I just think that in this day and age, this kind of behaviour should be really not tolerated any longer. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think the very worrying thing about it is that like incidents like these are like directly linked to kind of more serious assaults, and that 
you know, mm. all of these kind of gender-based incidents and, and violence, they all centre kind of around the objectification and unwanted sexualization of women. So I think these small incidents, it's important that we talk about them and they're brought to the forefront because if we let small things like this happen, they turn into big things, um, which obviously we don't want as, as a society and as women. Yeah. And did you just walk away then and nobody said anything to you nobody else I think I saw in your in your tweet that somebody did sigh but like what good is that yeah no it wasn't it wasn't very helpful um, I think a lot of people in the area kind of recognised that it was unacceptable mm. um, but it just would have been really great I think if some people had actually intervened and stepped in um, especially like the men I suppose who yeah. kind of have that privilege of, of not being targeted by stuff like this and um, it would have been fantastic if they'd been able to use that privilege and actually step in and, and talk to the people who were kind of doing this. Do you think that people find it difficult to intervene in something like that in case the tables turn on themselves then? Because, you know, um, I'm not sure how I would have reacted if I had seen that. I don't know if I'd have been able to just go up to three fellas and say, look, you know, mm-hmm. leave her alone in case they started at me. But then maybe, yeah. do you know, like, it's. do you think that that could have been the situation? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. These things are uncomfortable and they're difficult and they're not easy. And I completely understand that. Um, But they're even more uncomfortable if you are a woman and you're trying to intervene, Mm. which is why I think we need men really to start talking about this and to start talking to their friends. Because the kind of reality of it is that pretty much all women or the vast majority of women have experienced this. Mm. Um, Yet, obviously, not all men are perpetrated. But that probably means that if you're a man, one of your friends or one of your family members has probably done this. And it's so important, I think, that we start having the conversations um, with our friends and with our families. And as well as that, we kind of start bringing these conversations kind of from hypothetical places, um, such as the internet, um, to real-life conversations um, and to actually, like, discussions with, with family and friend members. And I think that all of that will kind of empower people and help people to actually step up when they see things like this happening in real life. Brilliant, Katie. Listen, thanks so much for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM this morning. And if there is anyone out there, you know, if you, if you saw somebody being catcalled or harassed like that, would you step in um, or would you feel intimidated? Let us know, 1850 715 996 Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Lots of you are getting in touch with us here on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM this morning about the property tax. And I'll return to all those comments later in the show. Keep them coming. 1850-715-996-083-396-9696. But now um, it's expected that 80% of adults in Ireland will be vaccinated against COVID-19 by September. So what will normal life look like then? And joining me on the line is immunovirologist from UCC, Professor Liam Fanning. Good morning, Liam. Good morning. Professor Fanning, can you just tell us what do you think normal life is going to look like when we have that percentage of the population vaccinated? I suppose the first thing to kind of unpick really is uh, 80% of adults still means that there's an awful lot of the population unvaccinated. Um, you know, those individuals under 16. Um, and uh, that, as we've seen already, um, there's been considerable debate uh, on the indoor dining as to whether to allow unvaccinated under 18-year-olds. And that's only kind of the, I suppose, the tip of the iceberg with regard to the discussion on what society will be like when we have 
a large percentage of the um, adult population because we'll have so many of uh, the population unvaccinated. So we'll still be dealing with uh, concerns around COVID-19 infection. And I suppose one of the discussions that will come out is the vaccination of individuals under 16 years of age. That's something that will be a feature of the next couple of weeks, definitely. Um, And DMA has approved uh, both mRNA vaccines for uh, 12 to 15 year olds. So um, we'll have, we'll be approaching the new school year and the new academic year for the uh, universities. So I suppose uh, the first impact will be uh, as to whether we have the 12 to 15 year olds on a vaccination schedule at that stage. If we do, um, then, uh, and as soon as they're all vaccinated, you know, we have largely protected the entire secondary school population and above because the university students will have had an opportunity to um, uh, receive a vaccine as well. And uh, those individuals who work, uh, you know, between, who are between 16 and 30 will all be vaccinated as well. So Mm. from a work perspective, you know, there'll be very big changes uh, in the immunity of our workforce. Uh, We'll be largely protected as a workforce um, from the serious consequences of COVID-19. So that leads to, you know, kind of more capacity to have an adult-only socialising event where everybody is likely to be vaccinated. Um, So do you think a lot of people might be able to return to their office from like September, October onwards? Oh, I do. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, the um, the opportunities for anyone to receive a vaccine have, uh, you know, excelled over the last couple of months and exceeded. Um, We haven't quite reached our 80% of adults vaccinated in June. That was obviously shifted to 80% of adults vaccinated by the end of August. And that, you know, that includes a very large majority of individuals who are within the workforce. And yes, they should be able to return to the office. Now, it will lead to some... Um, I'd say some interesting discussions um, about uh, who declares whether they've been vaccinated or not because, um, you know, work protocols um, will have to take account of health and safety and GDPR and we will have a very, I think, interesting discussion as to whether GDPR trumps health and safety uh, with respect to a colleague's right to know whether individuals are or are not vaccinated mm. because we've seen, um, you know, several... Um, uh, points made by world leaders that you know the unvaccinated represent uh, a kind of um, a, a reservoir for this infection uh, to to largely kind of stay uh, within the population as an endemic disease, and um, the same applies at work as to whether you know uh, work colleagues and employers will have the capacity to know whether somebody is vaccinated or not unvaccinated. Clearly, if everybody's vaccinated in the work environment. You're, you, you know, you you have a different risk profile uh, if if you're dealing with that compared to a mixed vaccinated population, um, and those individuals who um, are unvaccinated would would clearly represent um, a greater risk than uh, to others than those that are vaccinated. You know, we'll have this. So, so this is that's one thing that is going to come sharply into mm. focus uh, when we come back, both from an academic school perspective and from a workforce perspective. Um, and I suppose crashes as well in anything that where, where individuals are engaging with other individuals, this dichotomy between some people wanting to declare they're vaccinated and some just not saying. Mm. And in the, in the, you know, I suppose if somebody is not saying that they're vaccinated, it might be prudent from a health and safety perspective to presume rightly or wrongly that they are unvaccinated. You know, I mean, this is health, private health information. Individuals, you know, keep this very close to their chest and don't often share their health details with uh, friends, colleagues, never mind employers. So I think it's it's going to be that's going to be a feature of life coming on. I imagine 
that um, at least I hope there are discussions in in uh, all the workforces around the country as to what's going to what's going to be the lie of the land with respect to having a mixed vaccinated or unvaccinated population. That's one aspect of it. Um, and Professor Fanning, what about mask wearing? Do you think that that will become optional in time? I do. And when do you think that will be? Oh, so uh, this is uh, so well at the outset of your your our discussion. You mentioned eighty percent of the adult population uh, vaccinated. We will need to start turning this conversation around to what percentage of the total population are vaccinated. And and the reason for that is that in order to kind of have our nation as uh, protected from an immunological perspective as much as possible, we need as many individuals within our nation vaccinated. And that means you know the twelve to fifteen year olds, and we need to have. Um, a very good public health education message as to the values for parents and guardians to make a decision as to the five to eleven year olds then, um, and have that you know have an informed discussion um, as to why it's of value um, and to fully understand um, that these modern medicines um, on on rare occasions um, can have complications, but so too can picking up COVID. Uh, 19, even in children who, and you know, uh, you'll have heard from myself and colleagues that, you know, most individuals who are in that age category, we'll say 5 to 16, mm. can largely handle this infection with very, very little complications. But there are the few individuals, and there are some children who are vulnerable, who have other conditions, you know, they may have leukemias or cancers, or they may have some other condition that makes them vulnerable to picking up infections. You know, so, um, it, it, you know, no group is a clear kind of um, single single entity you know you'll have individuals as i said who are sicker than others who are fitter than others and then you'll have the individuals who get this infection and it's a complete surprise um that uh it has uh, you know consequences uh, for them for their for their ongoing health so we have a very interesting few months from an immunological and a virological perspective coming up but definitely discussions around childhood vaccination of against uh, COVID-19 um, uh, need to be front and centre and need to be happening fairly soon. I know there's so many fronts going on on the vaccination front. We'll have the booster discussion coming up soon. That's another thing that's going to be a feature of the next couple of months as well. Because remember, some individuals are vaccinated at the very end of December and January. Mm. And by the time we come to September, they'll be you know, heading to nine months post-vaccination. Um, and you know, because vaccines are a, a new medicine, um, in our fight against COVID-19, we haven't got the clearest of understanding as to how long immunity lasts. Um, and, um, you know, it is unlikely to disappear um, and to be uh, totally ineffective. Um, and this is where the discussion around boosters becomes a feature of our, um, we we'll say, national life for the next couple of uh, weeks and months. Um, and I think we will see boosters coming on um, stream sometime soon. Uh, it's up to NIAC to make that decision as to, as to when that will actually happen. But that's another discussion for workforces as well. Yeah. You know, um, you know who goes for them and when they go for them. And you know, That'll happen over the next couple of months. So that won't be an immediate thing. I imagine it'll be a rolling. So if you are vaccinated in January, we'll say you might be get your boost in September and then they'll roll kind of, you know, February into October and so on, that kind of way. And Professor Fanning, what does herd immunity look like? It's not just a simple number like 90% of the population, is it? No, it's not. No. Um, and uh, it has been, you know, it is a term used in immunology and it is a term correctly used when you have a proportion of an, a population which would basically prevent an infected individual passing it on to another susceptible individual. Mm. And so what you end up having is this buffer of uh, less susceptible or immune individuals around an infected individual. And if you like, the virus can't jump into another zone where there's another uninfected individuals. So we have these barriers. Now, as we know, 
people who are vaccinated can pick up uh, COVID-19 again. And we've seen with the mRNA vaccines that that's probably, you know, 90% are protected against getting reinfected. And with the AstraZeneca and the J&J, it's in around the 60, 65% are protected against reinfection. So, you know, we have this, um, we'll have this herd immunity will kick in in that it will, when we reach whatever figure, that magical figure that is. Because remember also, we have a group of individuals who are immune as a result of infection. So, you know, uh, the, the numbers actually immune are probably a little bit larger than those that actually are quoted with regard to the immune as a result of double vaccination. Um, and from a population perspective, we're certainly probably approaching 60-65% um, of the total population. Um, you know, close to f- uh, full immunity because I think the latest figure is that we are north of 83 or 82% for having received one shot. Um, so, you know, as a nation, uh, we are very much doing the best we can to get towards this this magical uh, notion of um, herd immunity. We will, we, you know, uh, COVID-19 will stay what's called an endemic virus for a while. Mm. In other words, it'll be kind of, you know, it'll be there in the background amongst largely the unvaccinated individuals. And this is why it's so important we get as many of the adult population vaccinated as possible and why we start moving to the 12 to, to 15-year-olds um, and then they're only, you know, they'll be the mRNA vaccines they'll be getting. And then we have that discussion then with the 5 to 11-year-olds because we're going to be coming into a flu season. Or we didn't have much of one last year, but the ordinary kind of head colds, you know, the kind of snotty noses and all mm. that kind of thing as a result of running temperatures. And what you want to do for, with childhood vaccination with COVID is to take that out of the picture so that, you know, um, you know, you know, we don't have a cohort of individuals who are thinking that they are susceptible to the serious consequences of COVID-19 infection. Um, um, you know, so that's where the vaccinate, childhood vaccination against COVID-19 also comes into it. The language around, you know, the 5 to 11-year-olds is different to the 12 to 16-year-olds. You can bring 12 to 16-year-olds into the conversation with you. You know, they're nearly adults. You know, at this and at 16, so you can sign their own medical consent for most things. The 5 to 11-year-olds are totally under parental and guard, uh, guardianship control. or not control, but, you know, guidance and, 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 and minding. So, um, it, you know, that's why we need a very clear and early public health message as to the value and to fully inform parents and guardians as to maybe the potential risks um, on a population-wide level um, for using these vaccines. Yeah, because I suppose, like uh, Professor Fanning, if a young person with, for example, cystic fibrosis is not really protected, then if they mix with young people who are all unvaccinated, really? Yes, even if they are vaccinated, they, you know, they're, they're, they're more at risk of being challenged by somebody who has, you know, who has virus and is shedding that virus. So, you know... Um, we have largely kind of done um, exceptionally well with regard to our vaccinations. Now, I would have some, you know, some some alternative ideas about the way the age-related vaccination was rolled out. But nonetheless, we are where we are in the situation where, you know, anybody who's over 18 now and 16, I think, and 17-year-olds tomorrow, um, you know, so... Look, yes, to protect those most vulnerable. And they could be anybody, you you know, you don't even know necessarily that you're protecting them by being vaccinated, you know, because, not, as I said, not everybody declares their, their underlying health conditions. And that applies to children as well, you know, um, and, and creches. And, you know, they're all more protective the more vaccinated our population is. And that includes, you know, um, five to 11-year-olds. And at some point we'll have a discussion less than five-year-olds, but we're not there yet. Professor Liam Fanning, a listener has been in touch with us here on the opinion line on Cork's 96 FM and this says, how can this be called a vaccine when you can still get the disease with it? Doesn't that fly in the face of everything we know about vaccines? This is just an experiment which may have a good outcome or may not, but I'm going to wait. What would you say to that 
person? Okay, well, the first thing is it's, it's, it's each individual's free choice to take this vaccine or not. And that, so that's, that's the first thing. Yeah. You know, these vaccines are not compulsory. Um, so that's the first thing. Everybody has a free choice and everybody uh, chooses to get their information from wherever portals they want, be it radio, television, the internet, whatever, you know, the European Medicines Agency or whatever. These vaccines have gone through very rigorous, you know, uh, trials. I know they appear to have come out, uh, come out re- relatively quickly from the identification of COVID-19, but this is based on years and years of science. And these clinical trials that were, that were done um, were done, you know, with very high degree of rigor. And, you know, the EMA as a, an august agency for approving medicines on behalf of us, and then we nationally approve them secondarily then, um, have looked at all the data. And, you know, like with any medicine, there are risks. This is not um, a big experiment. Um, the clinical trials deal with the experimental protocols and how much we're going to use of these vaccines. And then what is determined is, the, you know, they are not used if they don't come up to a particular threshold. And each of the vaccines that are currently licensed in our, for use in Ireland have exceeded um, the expectations with respect to protection from hospital and protection from the consequences of uh, serious consequences of infection. And that's key. So, you know, individuals do get infected after vaccination, but the vaccines are not designed to give you what's called sterilizing immunity. In other words, you'll never get infected again. When you get infected again, if you're vaccinated, you're preloaded with immune molecules which protect you and help protect you. And um, the evidence for that is individuals who are vaccinated are less likely to end up in hospital, are less likely to die. There's one very good piece of uh, evidence on this in Texas. They looked at, they had 9,000 COVID-19 deaths since February of this year. So in other words, since the start of vaccination. And every one of them, except for 43, were unvaccinated. In other words, 99.5% of the COVID-related deaths were in the unvaccinated individuals. Now, they have much larger numbers than we could ever hope, you know, we don't want to achieve those numbers in Ireland. Mm -hmm. But that gives you the sense of the protection that these vaccines give vaccinated individuals even though they may become reinfected um, and you know even in the united kingdom where they had um, they looked at their data and they looked at 25 children who died as a result or with covid 19 and you know half them had underlying serious conditions so you know these vaccines give wonderful protection against the serious consequences of infection hospitalization and death um, and you know the ema and our own NIAC and NEFID and the government would not be taking on board, you know, uh, the use of these medicines if they were if the benefits didn't outweigh the risks. Professor Liam Fanning, immunovirology at UCC. Thank you very much for joining us on the opinion line on Corks ninety six FM. Can we just talk? The opinion line with PJ Coogan. Call us now eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six on Corks ninety six FM. Lots of comments coming in with regards to the rising of the city council property tax. Kevin says we're constantly being taxed to the hilt, yet we see appalling waste with our eyes. Road repairs that fall apart very quickly. Empty houses belonging to the council. Derelict sites belonging to the council that could be used to build houses. <laughs> The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. 
Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan on this Tuesday morning. Now, um, in the first hour of the show, I spoke to Fianna Fáil councillor Terry Shannon about the City Council's vote last night to increase the property tax to 9%. A lot of people getting in touch in relation to that. Um, Mick Nugent, councillor Mick Nugent, um, has been in touch to say at the City Council meeting last night, Sinn Féin group leader uh, councillor Mick Nugent reiterated the party's opposition to the local property tax and certainly could not support any increase in the rate for hard-pressed householders that central government needed to address funding shortfalls for local authorities, particularly due to the pandemic. Another caller got in touch to say, I do not have a property, I have a home. That's what's wrong with the political system here. They think that a house, even bought at a modest price in the last 15 years that's gone up in value, is an asset. It's no good for me, I have to live in it. It should not be taxed until it's a luxury show-off home for a millionaire. When I heard him say about the Opera House and the people in the country not paying for it, they buy tickets. Isn't that the way that theatres should fund themselves unless they're doing something very artistic altogether? Neve has been in touch to say we should be not we should not be compared to abroad. In a lot of countries in Europe, your local taxes include refuse collection and water, for example. We already have big bills for them. Sophie says, when did property tax become a permanent tax? When it was introduced, it was temporary. Never was money was meant to be centralised. Also, where is the public view of how money is spent broken down? Is it on a website? Michael says, plenty of money to pay trips for councillors, an increase in income, services continuously reduced. Councillors, in my opinion, are self-serving. Another listener has been in touch with us here on the Opinion Line on Corks 96 FM to say, why is it only property owners pay Paying this tax, some council house owners have their houses for life and often pass down to family, yet they pay no tax. Um, also, in relation to my um, my conversation with Professor Liam Fanning about what normal life is going to look like after 80% of the vaccination has been, uh, or 80% of the population has been vaccinated, uh, a caller has been in touch to say, I saw a guy on TV say that this virus will keep evolving and the vaccines will always be chasing the variants like happens with the flu. He said that we will not be out of it until we get an antiviral to treat it. And he said that would take 18 months or more. He said that over one year ago and so far everything he said is proving true. And the more the vaccines don't work in terms of Delta variants and so on, the less people will be inclined to take them or a booster. Another listener has been in touch with the opinion line here on Cork's 96 FM. Hi Fiona, that doctor you just had on from UCC was very good, clear with his explanations and very fair points. Keep your comments coming in to us on any of things that we've discussed so far or anything left to discuss on the show. Um, 1850 715 996 96 Now for something different, we were just discussing yesterday after the show about the availability of the contraceptive pill for for people of all ages I suppose but young women in particular um, and we were reading about how it has now become available over the counter in the UK. Joining me on the line now is Sam Boland from Rebels for Choice. Good morning Sam. Good morning, Fiona. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very well. Thank you for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM this morning. Sam, what is the problem with getting the contraceptive pill over the counter here in Ireland? Um, it's, it's just not available over the counter uh, in Ireland. Um, and that, you know, that's a, a problem for access to contraception. 
mm. um, which uh, for my group, which um, in case anybody needs a refresher, was part of the uh, Repeal the AIDS campaign and continues to campaign on abortion rights issues. Um, for us, contraception and free access and easy access to contraception is one of the, is one of the primary ways of preventing unwanted pregnancy and hence... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Is hence one of the ways of um, lowering uh, abortion rates, which is what uh, everybody wants. And like um, obviously, we've seen now in the UK that they can get the contraceptive pill over the counter. There, do you think it is something that we will see here in time? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, there is a vague tradition of, of us following Britain in, in a lot of uh, aspects of uh, social change. So I guess eventually we will see it, but um, I don't think we'll see it for a long time because there's very little will, uh, sort of political will, to to, um, to follow up on any of the promises that were made following the uh, the, the repeal of the Eighth, uh, Eighth Amendment. Um, better access to contraception um, was one of the things that Simon Harris, as Minister for Health, promised mm. in the wake of the referendum, and also um, access uh, over-the-counter access to to uh, the contraceptive pill was one of the things strongly recommended by the Citizens' Assembly, which, uh, as you recall, was um, a precursor to to the to the entire referendum process. Um, but you know, three years on, we're still waiting. There's no uh, there's no um, there's no access to the contraceptive pill over the over the counter here. Mm. Um, there's no improved access to any other types of contraception, um, which was which was promised uh, as part of the uh, broader um, access to abortion, uh, access to reproductive health care. There's no improvement in uh, sexual education uh, programs, which was promised uh, as part of the follow-up to the repeal uh, uh, referendum. Uh, None of these things um, What problems is it causing for people that they can't get it, that they have to go to their doctor in order to get a prescription for it? Uh, Solely for the contraceptive pill, you mean? Yes, yes. Yeah. it's just a case of access. Um, it's just one more step that people have to go through. Now, to someone who has a good working relationship with their, or has a good relationship with their doctor, um, and you know, can uh, has easy access to their doctor, um, these things, you know, the problems that, that that exist or the barriers that exist might not occur to you. You know, if you, if you can just go to your GP and say hi. Uh, Dr. Sullivan, I need uh, another prescription for a pill. Grant, no problem. But, you know, if someone... Is, you you mentioned younger people at the start mm. of, of this segment. You know, some younger people may be sexually active and are taking a responsible dis- uh, decision to, um, to get uh, access to regular, reliable contraception. But they may be in a situation where their parents or guardians may not approve. So there's... Um, there's a, automatically a barrier there and someone mm. who desperately needs contraception is is uh, either prevented from getting it or uh, it makes it much more difficult to get it. Uh, again, you know, moving away from younger people, someone who might be in an abusive relationship might want to go on the pill or um, to control their, their fertility uh, and they may have a controlling partner who doesn't want that. So... Th- Going to the doctor, going to your GP, then becomes that much more difficult. Uh, again, as, as I say, unnecessarily dif- difficult. 
Um, with regards to the morning after pill, is that still um, not available over the counter? Do you still have to go into your doctor to get a prescription for that? Um, you'll have to forgive me for being a bit unprepared here. I'm actually not entirely sure. Okay. I think... Because I know you couldn't get, in my day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things we couldn't do in our day. Yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah. no, I think, I think you can get that in the, in, in the pharmacy. Okay. Um, but you would have you have to undergo a consultation, not, not with your GP, but then you have to go undergo a consultation with uh, the pharmacist. Yeah, the, yeah, the research team are telling me here that it is available over the counter, so thanks for, yeah. for clarifying that for us. Um, yeah. I suppose like that raises the question, question as to why you can get that, but you can't get, um, you can't get the contraceptive pill over the counter then as well. That's that is the question, isn't it? Mm. It's, just, it's a, just an absolutely backwards thing, isn't it? Um, now I know that the, in in the UK, uh, this this uh, latest decision that they have about getting the the pill over the counter, there you have to go for a consultation with the pharmacist as well. So you don't okay. have to go to the GP, but you do have to you still have to go undergo a consultation. But it, it's what that one step out of the process. You know, there's one less thing that you, one less hurdle you have to overcome, I suppose. Do people often say to you about the cost being a problem? I mean, I know that the contraceptive pill itself is not hugely expensive, but then when you add in the the fees, the doctor fees, um, you have to get a repeat prescription every six months. So obviously, that is a cost. There is a cost yeah. factor there as well for yeah. people. Yeah. Well, you put your finger on it when you say it's not. Um, it's not particularly expensive. Now, to maybe to yourself or myself. Um, or someone in our socioeconomic bracket, it might not be very expensive. But when you when you're counting every penny, and you know there are some people in these situations, and they're counting every single penny, that uh, that uh, visit to your GP could be prohibitively expensive. Mm. So yeah, absolutely, cost cost is um, cost is one of the issues uh, regarding access to contraception. And you know, just to go back to um, the abortion rights campaign, one of the slogans was "Free, Safe, Legal," and that's. Uh, the reason why we say safe is because, or sorry, the reason why we say free is because you know, your rights, whether it's reproductive health care or access to contraception or anything like that, it shouldn't depend on your socioeconomic circumstances. So, of course, uh, of course, cost is, a, uh, cost is an issue for an awful lot of people. And, and as you said at the start, again, for young people, that cost sometimes is, is even, even more of an issue. John has been in touch to say going to the GP for contraception needs to happen as every woman has different medical needs. Is that, um, do you think that that's true? Do you think that it should be that everybody needs to be checked out by the doctor every couple of months? Or do you know, like, would it be enough to go to the doctor, get the prescription initially, and then after that, then just over the counter every six months? Well, I'm a big believer in everyone knowing their own body and having autonomy over their own body. And so someone who's been to the GP for their initial consultation, perhaps, um, they then pr- would have a good idea of whether the pill is working for them or not and whether mm. they need another uh, visit to the GP. Um, I think anybody who, who's been on the pill long term knows that you know, your body goes through changes and sometimes you do need to change your, uh, your pill over the course of 10 years or however long you're taking it. Mm. But that decision to change shouldn't, you know, that should be left up to the person taking the pill. Yeah. You, you know, you don't have to have, 
I think it's almost almost patronising to say you've got to have a GP mm. watching over you every time you take any type of medicine. Um, if it's working for you for that period of time. I mean, a chemist well can done, check yeah. your blood pressure. They're doing it for people who are going in for the morning after pills. So, um, you know, it seems like a bit of a ludicrous situation to say you have to go to your GP to get your blood pressure checked. Exactly. And as we see in England, pharmacists are still doing that consultation. So it's not... It's not the Wild West out there. People aren't just buying loads of pills and taking them all at once. Yeah. So there, there, there's still, um, there's still oversight. So um, the necess- necessity to go and uh, go and spend money going to your GP or spend that time going to your GP that you may not have, you may not have that time, you may not have that money, you may not have that kind of accessibility. I don't, I just, I don't see the need for it. Sam Boland, thanks very much for joining me. What do you think? Do you think that the contraceptive pill should be available over the counter? Um, caller has been in touch to say men don't take contraception. They can buy condoms over the counter. Maybe if they were forced to take contraception, they wouldn't be long making it more affordable and easier to access. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 83 On Quartz 96FM. Now we mentioned at the top of the show that the government will be discussing guidelines around weddings today and meanwhile there will be 200 brides to be marching outside the doll and we are joined now on the line by Frank, celebrity plan- wedding planner. Good morning Frank. Morning, how are you? I'm very well, I'm very well. Uh, a lot of confusion around weddings and people saying that the government has kind of neglected the sector a little bit. What are you seeing from brides or what are you hearing from brides at the minute? Yeah, I think they're just um, devastated with the leaks that are happening. So we don't really know the information yet, whether it is going to be back staying at 50 or is it going to go to 100? Mm. And the fact that it was leaked that it was going to go to stay to 50 um, obviously, it was devastating to so many brides because a lot of them have paid their all their money for 100 guests. At this stage, they've sent their invitation. So it's all very, very last minute for them to get this information now, you know. Now, I still don't know, uh, and neither is anybody else, whether or not we are going to go to 100. Um, and um, so I think until we hear that information, we really can't call it. But the leak has actually just caused so much um, upset um, because you know, it's the uncertainty and also the whole sector anyway in general. We have been, you know, nearly two years now um, where it's been postponed after postponed after postponed and couples have moved their dates two and three times have lost a lot of deposits. A lot of vendors haven't been supported and so the industry in general has been, you know, we feel neglected compared to other industries, you know. Do you think that, like, I suppose a lot of these brides and husbands-to-be, uh, a lot of couples have maybe had their weddings postponed a number of times because of COVID. Oh, yeah. And they were hoping to have a 100-person wedding in August. And now they're kind of a couple of weeks out from their weddings. Many of them have already sent out the invitations and they still don't know how many of those people are actually going to be able to come. Yeah, and some of them have just got a week to go. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and they still don't know right now what's happening. So it is terrible, you know. I mean, and again, you know, we uh, really want to have safe weddings and, uh, and events, you know. That's what I'm I'm about. I want I want I want every a possible way to be safe for the industry. Mm. And the problem I've seen is that um you know, in other businesses and industries, a bit like the movie industry in Ireland and the meat industry in Ireland, they've been working away 
all through COVID and successfully uh, by getting all their staff and all the people um, tested, whether it's PCR or antigen tested. And that means that they've been able to continue their businesses. I feel uh, at this stage it's the only way forward is to have antigen testing. And it's not a huge cost. And I mm. think it will make a huge difference to having 200 guests or 300 guests at a wedding because if you know that everybody in that room has been tested, it's the safest way possible. Because even nowadays, um, you know, I've got, I'm fully vaccinated. I've got the, um, the new passport, but I still would not be allowed uh, into a meat factory or onto a movie set without being PCR or antigen tested because they know that 20% of people um, who are in Ireland getting COVID right now are actually people who are fully vaccinated. So I see this as being a huge issue in in the events industry being turned around, you know? And I think that if we don't start, there's no other way out, you know? I I know Mr. Um, Hulan's doing his best and he wants to, you know, stop the spread. But I don't see there being a stop of a spread when you can walk into a restaurant with 100 people and no, nobody's testing in there. Yeah. Um, and how is that any different to us wanting to test, you know, uh, freely ourselves and get, and get people to do it? I've even set up um, a company called Event Doc where I'm testing my own clients, my own staff, um, because that's the only way I can see forward that's safe. So it's just, it's very upsetting for couples not to know, you know, at this late stage, how many they can have. We heard that the digital COVID search might make it possible for larger weddings to take place. Do you think that that's a good idea? Do you think that we I should do, have that? I think, yeah, I think it is a good idea. But is it the is it the um, will it be the end and the, the most safest way? Possibly not. Not when I hear that you can get uh, COVID when you're fully vaccinated. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it is definitely you know every tool we can use to make it safer for people at events and weddings and in restaurants, I think the better. But um, even the search for me now, I know globally um, that, you know, the virus is mutating and there's the, the, the vaccine is, is, not, um, is not stopping people who are fully vaccinated getting it. 20% of them are, are still getting it with the full vaccination. Frank, I've seen a lot of comments over the last few days on social media about weddings and the amount of people that can go and people were saying, um, you know, that a wedding is about the the two people who are getting married. It shouldn't really matter how many people are at it. And in Ireland now, our weddings are too big anyway. But I suppose that's kind of missing the point. It's the fact that there has been so much confusion and people don't know how many people they can actually have. Yeah, the wedding industry, we're, we're, we're literally... You know, um, it's a celebration of families. And when it was down to six, I thought it was terrible. Mm. And I thought it was ridiculous that it was such a low number. And because, you know, a lot of families in Ireland are 10 or 20, never mind six. And um, there was brothers and sisters who weren't able, and children weren't able to go to their own uh, parents' wedding or their own siblings' wedding. So I think that was a crazy number for me. But I understood the reason why they were doing it. But I, I think that... We were told 50, and if we were told 50 from now until, you know, um, September, October, then everybody would have planned for 50 for, from, you know, June to, to October, and there would be no issue. The problem is we were told it was going to go to 100, mm. and the wedding industry didn't announce that. It was the government announced that. And so, again, 
it's kind of the numbers are going up and going down and that's where I think the issue lies, you know, and also and the leaks. You know, people can say whatever they want. If somebody wants a wedding of 200 or somebody wants a wedding of six, really that's their own choice as long as it's safe. That's my point. And I think the only way I can guarantee it is safe is if it's tested, everybody going into that event. Then I know it's safe. Otherwise, I really don't know. And even having, you know, being fully vaccinated myself, I thought, well, yeah. I'm safe. And I got my passport. I'm safe. Yeah. And then I go to work on a movie set and I have to get three tests before I'm allowed on site. And I'm thinking, well, why am I? Why is that happening? And it's yeah. because I'm not safe. <laughs> so, <laughs> and just finally, Frank, um, there was a lot of confusion as well about music. What is the the guideline at the minute around music at weddings? Can we have you can, ha- you can have one um, kind of un- unamplified um, musician at the service, but you right. can't have a band playing because they don't want anybody dancing. Um, and at the moment, you, you couple aren't supposed to have a first dance either. Again, I think that's a, a kind of a crazy situation that, that you know, this it's it doesn't really make a lot of sense mm-hmm. and that's why, you know, we're the they're trying to put forward um um rules to, to help guide guidelines for all this. Um I'm not sure what I don't kind of I I'm not in um gonna be, you know, marching on the doyle with with um, two hundred brides <laughs> in yeah. bridal dresses because I don't think I don't know if that's going to really help the situation I think it's kind of making it more of a, a picture opportunity um, I, I I know what I know the the, the lady involved and um, the planners involved in yeah. it are trying to just get um, press to showcase you know how bad the situation is yeah. but I think I think um, for me the most important thing is finding a way to get the events industry back up and running. And I think I've seen it working in the uh, movie industry and I've seen it work working in the meat industry that the testing works. And I think that's what that's the only way I can see it working for us. Uh, the safest way as well for, for my clients. I I'm, I'm, I just want it the most safe. I, I don't want to have a wedding for 200 if I don't think it's safe. And I don't think any of the brides and grooms out there want that either. So they just want to know what is the best way to do this and how can they have their friends and family there. I think a lot of couples would have no problem paying, uh, you know, five or six euros for a mansion test Mm. and to know that their family and friends are going to be safe for their wedding day. Brilliant, Frank. Thanks very much for joining us on The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Now, you mightn't be seeing Rihanna at a festival this year, but you can be listening to her in your back garden with the Cork's 96FM's exclusive online station, the Back Garden Festival, which is back. And we're streaming the biggest hits from your favourite festival stars with Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialist in sound this summer. Listen on our app or go to 96FM.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's Entertainment. Musicians Mike Hanrahan and Lorraine Nash and comedian Colin O'Regan are amongst the acts scheduled to appear at the Triscoll Courtyard, a new covered space seating up to 50 people in pods. The shows take place on the 7th and 8th of August, with lots more taking place until Sunday 15th of August when Little Hours play. Access all areas. Four-piece alternative rock band New Dad emerged from Galway at the beginning of last year, self-releasing a string of hit tracks. Since then, they've been streamed nearly 2 million times on Spotify alone, and they play Cypress Avenue on September 23rd. Access All Areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show play or exhibition coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us here at aaa at 96fm.ie.
Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on Lisa. On Cork's 96FM. The savings don't stop this summer at Lidl. With our award-winning board BA-approved Irish duck breasts were $5.99, now only €5. And our fresh Irish celery was $0.79, now $0.49. Not forgetting our four-pack of board BA-approved Irish chicken burgers was $2.65, now €2. And we fresh fruit and veg delivered seven days a week. Lidl, more for you. We look forward to welcoming you to our Plaza Motorway service stations. Quality food and four courts with Supermax, Papa John's, Super Subs, Bewley's Barista, Max Place Deli and Spar. Come for the fuel, stay for the food. The Plaza Group, the perfect pit stop on your journey. Now open at the Port Leash Plaza. Ireland is moving cautiously through our recovery plan. Indoor hospitality has reopened for people with proof that they are fully vaccinated or have recovered from COVID-19. The Delta variant continues to increase, but by working together to stick to the basics, we can help to slow its spread. Choose outdoors, even if an indoor option is available. If inside, make sure it is well ventilated and avoid crowded spaces. And let's all keep hand washing, wearing our face coverings and keeping our distance, even outdoors. Thanks to the support of the Irish people, our vaccination programme continues to make great progress. Over 66% of the adult population are fully vaccinated and anyone aged 18 and over can register for a vaccine. The Economic Recovery Plan is helping people get back to work and supporting businesses. So let's protect this progress. For more information and full details on indoor dining, see gov.ie forward slash recovery. Supported by the Government of Ireland. Right now, Carrigaline Furniture and Carpet Centre have amazing value on carpets, laminate and vinyl flooring. Choose a luxury carpet for the bedroom, a hard-wearing laminate for the living area and a practical, stylish vinyl for the bathroom. They also have a huge range of respite beds and mattresses available for immediate delivery. Transform your home for less. Shop in-store or online at carrigalinefurnitureandcarpets.ie A world of choice. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Quartz 96 FM. Now, um, before the break, I was speaking to Frank about weddings and the guidelines around weddings. And obviously that's going to be discussed by the government later today. And a caller has been in touch to say, I was at a wedding last week and there was a band playing in the reception. We danced the whole night. Whoops. Uh, Won't it be great to be able to go back to to living like that? Um, Also, I was speaking to Professor Liam Fanning about how our life will get back to normal again and what things will look like when we have 80% of the population vaccinated, which is expected to be by September. And somebody has been in touch with us to say the brother-in-law in the USA works in a bank working from home for the last year. Only vaccinated people allowed back in the office from next Monday. Unvaccinated people will work from home indefinitely. So keep your calls and comments coming in to us. 1850-715-996 or 0833-969696. Now you may have noticed in the last couple of weeks that there's been a shortage of many products on the shelves of our stores. And joining me on the line now is consumer journalist with the Irish Independent, Sinead Ryan. Good morning, Sinead. Morning, Fiona. Why are we seeing such a shortage of things? And are there things in particular that are um, of shortage in the shops? 
Okay, well, I suppose the first thing is that we're not seeing a shortage of any Irish products. And and that's really, really important uh, because a lot of this is down, unfortunately, to the ongoing five years on uh, uh, travails of Brexit. Uh, So where you're seeing shortages, it's goods that are passing through the UK. Now, they could be made in the EU, but they may be processed or passed through for packaging in the UK uh, or indeed where they're made in the UK. So British stores in the main. Now, Marks and Spencers have been reporting this for for quite a long time. Mm. Uh, There are some products maybe not available <clears throat> excuse me in in the likes of, of some of the Tesco branches so anything that has a centralized operation uh, that is coming via the UK and that is really because of this ongoing uh, row between the British government and the EU over what should be allowed and what should not be allowed to avoid an Irish border, uh, a hard border either on the island of Ireland or in the Irish Sea and it hasn't been sorted and it won't be sorted uh, until until one or the other side uh, gives, gives away and that is causing all kinds of problems. Sinead, what kind of problems are they causing for the consumer? Because obviously for the retailer it's a blow when they don't have full shelves but you know if it's a, a luxury item say for example um, you know it's not going to be a major problem for the consumer but are there items in particular that are actually important to shoppers and that they really need and that they're not seeing or they're not as available as they were beforehand? Well, of course, um, popularly, the biggest outcry have been over two particular products, that's sausages, uh, for some reason, (laughs) and Percy Pigs, which are those beloved little sweets that Marks and Spencers get in. They're actually made in Germany, but because they come through a British retailer and they're a highly processed food, uh, they are having difficulty making the transition as well. So poor old Percy is stuck over in the UK. Um, Cheese products uh, and processed meat products seem to be the ones that have the biggest problem. Uh, because of the certificates, the compliance requirements, uh, the extra health certificates, for for instance, for animal products that are much more difficult. Uh, So what British processors are finding is that if they want to ship that to Europe, including Ireland, uh, there's now a bunch load of more forms uh, and requirements than there used to be. That's because Britain now has a third country status. So in the same way, if we were taking it in from South America or we were taking it in from New Zealand or we were taking it in from, um, you know, uh, Canada, without a treaty in place, without an agreement in place about what's okay and what's not okay, uh, all those products carry their own raft and it is a raft of of forms, veterinary certificates, um, quality certificates and all that sort of stuff. So tinned goods aren't going to be a problem, for instance. Um, But we are finding that other uh, issues like uh, COVID, and remember the tanker that got stuck in the sales? Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that, yeah. <laughs> That's having knock-on effects with lots and lots of goods. Uh, so those that are making their way in can sometimes be much more expensive. And supply chain managers and retailers will often go to kind of the easiest route. I mean, they want to keep shoppers happy, but if there are 10 brands of a product and one is stuck in Britain or one is stuck because of COVID, they'll just go with the other nine. I mean, they are not going to kill themselves to get one item in uh, where there's other choice available. You mentioned their sausages. Like, how much of our sausages are important are imported? I mean, you think the likes of, like, people who be supporting Clonakilty sausages here in Cork. Yeah, and, and wouldn't they be right? And indeed, uh, you know, like, 
the, the hope is that lots and lots of people in the Republic would go to their local butcher or their local shop and buy Irish sausages. And I think for the most part, we do, Fiona. We mm. really like them. They're top quality. The problem is in the north of Ireland, people are giving out no end about not getting their British sausages. And that's where the problem is. So people used to a particular brand uh, are finding, you know, much more so in the north than, that, than here, uh, that they can't source it. Uh, and that that is the problem. But, but in Ireland, we are spoiled for choice when it comes to top quality dairy and top quality meat products. The problem is that a lot of those may in the past have been processed through the UK and those particular services are just slower, they're more expensive or they're not available at all. What about products like washing powder and baby food? Are they in short supply at the minute? I'm not hearing so much that they are. Um, Now, milk products generally, you see, they fall into this category. So baby formula, uh, for instance, uh, is a milk product and anything coming from the UK is going to be an issue. Now, there was much more of an issue earlier on with um, very specialist foods. So little, very premature babies who need maybe to be fed um, by a TPN line or something like that. A lot of those foods, medicines are processed in the UK and there was a shortage on that, but that seems to have been rectified now. Mm. Uh, in terms of, of baby formula products, well, we make quite a lot of them here, actually. So, um, I, I'm not hearing of a shortage then, but then I'm long past that stage, Fiona. <laughs> so I could, I leave it up to your listeners to tell me, rather than the other way around. Uh, maybe our listeners on the opinion line on Cork's 96 FM could get in touch and let us know what products they're without. Somebody has been in touch to say that they believe there'll be a shortage of Nike products later this year because Vietnam is locked down over COVID. Uh, that's very possible. Now, COVID is having a whole separate set of problems uh, on top of us having a Brexit issue. So things like, like we've seen now oil prices have shot up again and anybody filling their car with petrol or paying their electricity bill will see a hike in that uh, and ongoing uh, costs in that. So that's going to affect the price of goods uh, as much as anything else. Now, a big um, issue is going to be pet food. Uh, interesting enough. And that is to do with the fact that COVID lockdown has meant that far more families have now acquired a pet, specifically dogs, than ever had one before. So that dog ownership is at its height. And that's going to put pressure on things like pet food sales. Uh, Building materials, anyone who's tried uh, to get a quote from a builder uh, that's using wood or steel will see a hike in those prices. Uh, and again, that's due to COVID because the countries that produce that uh, are just not being able to do it in the same volume over the last 15 months. And there's a huge lag, Fiona. I know we're sick and tired of COVID and we're 15 months into it. But a lot of these products are kind of sourced two years ago um, by, by builders and contractors and all that. So they're only now beginning to feed into that supply chain uh, problem. And tragically, uh, one of the things that may well be hit is wine. Um, oh God, don't say that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you're finding that a lot of the wine growers throughout Europe, of course, weren't able to work. It's a very labour intensive. It's a very close um, artisan work really and, and that had been delayed uh, certainly at the beginning of the first number of lockdowns uh, so there'll be a, a kind of a lag in the supply in the supply of that so food inflation food price inflation is running at 7.1% uh, at the moment um, and, and that's really really high because normal inflation is around 2% um, so, so that is really impacting prices where we're going to see it here bread cereals 
and some dairy products. Anything of that nature that's imported, you're going to see the pretty much the higher prices. Sinead Ryan, thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that. If there is anything that you've noticed that you can't get, that you really, really need, let us know. 1850-715-996 or 0833-969696. Now, earlier this morning, I spoke to a lady called Alwyn Boyle who was having some difficulty getting pregnant and she went to Greece and she has been talking to me on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM today. Alwyn Boyle, first of all, just explain to me why you are in Greece at the minute. Um, Hi, how are you? So I'm over in Greece and I'm on my second round of IVF with Serum um, IVF Clinic over in Athens. I tried IUI, failed in Ireland, and then I I changed clinics, tried another clinic in Ireland. They said my eggs weren't viable, that I'd have to go down the road a double donor. Wasn't really happy about that. It didn't sit with me very well. I don't know why. Just everything kind of hits you quite hard when you can't do it yourself. Hmm. it's not the ideal it's not the plan it's not what you you know plan in life you know it's not the norm but um so they also said that they didn't think they'd carry out double donor because my bmi i tried to foster twice once i was refused because i had a job and then the second time i was refused because i didn't have a job because of covid um because i lost all my work during covid so it's been like a really tough two years i tried to adopt and i was basically told that i'm going to be under a serious amount of pressure to be accepted for adoption because they have a limit on a BMI of 34 to 35 and I'm over that and that broke my heart. So went to my Instagram and kind of was just devastated. Everything just like got knocked back after knockback for everything and um, I'm like almost 40 in a month and I was just, it was my, my niece Amy who kind of got me started on it all. She was like, you love kids, it's all you know. You have your stage school, you're a clown doctor, you know, you teach kids in schools and it's all I know. So I said, right, I'm going to have to keep going with this and hope for the best. And someone on Instagram said to me, have you heard of Serum? They're amazing and you can do embryo adoption. So in my head, it sat better with me. Um, You go over, you do like all the legal paperwork, like, you know, and you have a lawyer that gets you to sign stuff and you're adopting an embryo essentially, which made me feel like, that, I, that if that was terminated, it could be a lost child. Mm. So I was like, that's probably the closest to what I'll be able to do. So I tried it back in uh, May and I had a failed cycle, but I came over, I brought my dad over. So I I didn't, I didn't think it was a lost journey. He's 73, so it was mm-hmm. amazing to have him with me. And I came back this time and I got amazing news the other day. So it's really early days. But yeah, I got a positive. So I'm like, oh my God, but it hasn't really hit me yet. It's like, because it's so early and, you know, the 12 weeks is so important and Mm. I'm only four weeks now. So even though you only do a two week wait, you're four weeks pregnant when you find out. It's crazy. Science is just crazy. Well, congratulations on your good news and all the best. Hopefully it all goes really well. Um, You mentioned there about not being able to adopt because your BMI was too high. Like, what what is the reason behind that? Why would you not be allowed to adopt because of your BMI? Well, I actually questioned it when I was on the, there was a Zoom conference that you kind of, it takes a good while to get on it. And so if I wanted to adopt um, domestically, which would be Ireland or non-domestically, which is outside Ireland, you need a, what is called um, a passport to adopt. And 
you can only get one passport per adoption process. So it's not like when you get one and if you don't get accepted for that country, you have to go to another. So basically, I did a course with Helping Hands in Cork. They were absolutely brilliant. They're linked in with the organization here that organizes the adoption process did their course and it just came up in their course that um, yeah it's very unlikely if you have a BMI that you'd ever be accepted so I kind of let it go and then at the end of the meeting I, I said sorry can I just clarify what you said there you said that someone over a BMI over 34, 35 would not be accepted and it was made very clear to me that that was very true and I said why like why and they said the life expectancy of someone with a BMI of that number is a lot smaller than anybody else and just it broke my heart like I was like is this actually for is this actually real is this actually happening like and I said to the lady like all I know is children that's Mm. all I know like ask anyone I mind all their kids like it's all I know and I've got a home here that is safe and secure and loving family and I can give a child home. And so, do you think like, that yeah, that should be changed? Oh my God! Like if they asked me to do a fitness test, no problem. Like if they said, "Right, Alwyn, come in, and we're going to get you a fitness test." Like obviously, you do do all the other tests, you know, your health checks and screenings and stuff. But and it is obvious that you cannot be obviously a gambler or you know drug addict or anything like that when you're on when you're going through the process it was never mentioned in the course though Mm. you know and that kind of really upset me I was like you haven't mentioned any of those other things but you've made such an impact on me about this and you've when I've questioned you you've said yeah you're very unlikely to be allowed to adopt or like and from Instagram now it turns out that that's what happened to a lot of people who wanted to foster their BMI got in the way so I'm like bring me into a hospital test me mm. you know check check my health over your opinion of a number if that's the case the fittest people in Ireland that are doing bodybuilding or rugby players they can't adopt mm. their BMI is definitely over 34 Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah. You know, 34, 35. And I was just, yeah, it just blew my mind that I, I, you'd love to keep everything in our own country, but we can't with the way things are going, you know. And I know there's another way if I wanted to adopt, I could move to the country and become a resident within the country and it would be a lot easier. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense. Like money talks or moving to a country can talk, which is awful. 
it's really bad when there's children in need of somewhere to live. Mm. You know, and I suppose that's this is the closest way I could make this work so you know and everyone's like and will you tell the child and I was like I didn't know like because it's been a whirlwind for me too it's been such a massive learning curve we don't learn enough in school about our bodies we don't get our insides checked but we get our car checked we get Mm -hmm. NCTs in our car but we don't as women get our insides checked or anything sure half the things they told me they were checking I didn't know where they were or what they were it was crazy like beginning you know and um so I, I didn't know. And the last time I was here, I wrote a, a kid's book so that I could explain it to the child. Okay. And I I had to rewrite the end of it because it didn't work. And then I came back and finished it when I got the results. So. And will you be publishing yeah. that book? <laughs> if I could find someone to publish it, it would be amazing. <laughs> but I've had so many people read it now and they just cry. They're just yeah. like crying every time they read it they just cry but I put it on Instagram that I'd wrote a book and this uh, lovely girl called Lily May art by Lily May she's only 18 and um, she's offered to draw all the images for it so she's been sending them to me so we've got like the images and we've got my story and yeah people in the clinic read it the other day and they just started bawling and I was like is this good or bad and they were like this is what we want to tell our kids this is what we want to tell our kids so that kind of stuff has been very good for me Mm. to do that and the book will also help me explain it to like my friends kids because I'm always around kids and they're going to wonder like they've already said one of the one of my best friend's little boy was saying but mommy how how is Alman pregnant like you, you know how and you don't realise until you hear that stuff that that's going to happen you know yeah. and his brother turned around and he said she just did it a little bit different and that's okay and I was like <laughs> oh my god so yeah it's, it's all a bit mad but it's so sad we have to leave Ireland to do mm. things like this you know it is. Alwyn, listen, thanks so much. And again, congratulations on your news and stay in touch. Let us know how you're getting on. Hopefully everything goes okay for you. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan today and for the rest of this week. Now, earlier I was speaking to Alwyn Boyle, who had to go to Greece for... um, some uh, to try and get um, an embryo implanted to try and get pregnant because she was having difficulties trying to get pregnant here and she was told here that she wouldn't be able to adopt a baby because her BMI was too high Um, and a caller has been in touch with us here on the Opinion Line in Cork's 96FM to say I went in for a surgery consultation before and they refused to do it until my BMI was down. When I went to my GP he said he thought it was outdated as someone who was all muscle can have a high BMI and that was a point that Alwyn was making. What do you think? Do you think that the BMI system should be scrapped for, for I suppose, for surgery consultations or for adoption? Let us know. 1850-715-996-083-396-9696. Now, for some parents, the summer can be a long two months <laughs> trying to entertain your children. Um, but joining me now is Catherine Carton, who has some um, DI why ideas that we might be able to do with our children over the next few weeks. Good morning, Catherine. 
Hi, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for joining um, us yeah. on the opinion yeah. line. Yes. <laughs> um, so, it is hard to kind of entertain, entertain kids. And mm. while I don't have any myself, I do have a niece and nephew that I do give a dig out with the child minding. So, I do find it hard to kind of entertain them. But for kind of, I suppose, the month of August, uh, before they kind of go back to school in September. One thing I'm kind of doing at the moment is getting them involved in the garden. So it's a little bit late in the season to do seeds, but there are some quick germinating seeds if they want to have a shot. Mm-hmm. So cress, lettuce, oriental greens and some peas. If you want to do them from seeds, you can do them on the windowsill and you will see germination like within the week. But also if you have inpatient gardeners, which mine are, um, you can buy established vegetables in some of the nurseries. So you can buy them from plug, so you can get the likes of, you know, lettuce plugs or tomato plants that are already established and they can plant them in like pots and containers. Mm. And by the time they're going back to school, they'll probably have like a little tomato or they might be able to kind of like, you know, show it to the teacher or like show it to their friends, especially things like peas. Peas are quite quick and the weather is quite warm at the moment. So they might be able to kind of do like little things like that. So getting them involved with growing in the garden because I always say like the joy is in the germination. So sometimes they're like, when am I going to get like a strawberry or a tomato? And it's like, well, look at how much it's kind of growing each day. It gives them something to kind of like check in on, make sure they're like watering it and like just seeing how big it's getting like each day. Yeah, because, I mean, you can see the joy in their faces because we planted a strawberry bush and I let them help me plant it and they were watching it grow and then we did have a little few strawberries that came on and they were amazed that they were green and then they went red. Uh, But before they just (laughs) went red, the birds ate them. So I think if anybody is doing something like that, make sure that they're protected from the birds. (laughs) Yeah, that happens. But I'm just, I'd be like, it's nature. It's totally fine because actually my nephew is obsessed with you know, bugs and insects and he likes to kind of go around and, you know, like catch them. So what I did for him was I had like a shady spot in the garden and we planted some kind of like wildlife flowers. Mm. So I'm trying to kind of explain to him that, you know, it's okay if the bird eats a strawberry, like we're all kind of, you know, one and trying to get him like involved in like, you know, bees. Um, and like he's just mad for like the worms so I'm kind of trying to explain to him like it's okay that's food for the birds Um, but he's slowly coming around to the idea of that (laughs) and I was looking at your website um, and you talk an awful lot about recycling products um, to using certain items around the house as containers and I suppose that um, brings to children's attention the importance of recycling as well Yeah, and you know what, that's a fun project for slightly older kids that you can kind of do with them, but also teenagers. So I upcycled a filing cabinet drawer and I actually put my lettuce into it. Um, But like if you don't want to kind of do vegetables or whatever, like you can upcycle the old buckets and containers, even like plastic buckets, like just drill holes in the bottom of them. You know, you can like spray paint them or put like rope around them and decorate them. But like, I think especially last year, um, a lot of people came around to the idea because they couldn't get to the hardware shop. So they were like recycling, you know, milk jugs and things like that to grow things inside them. But if you do kind of have some older kids 
and teenagers who are in that kind of like TikTok generation where, you know, they love to kind of like share like their kind of creative ideas, like getting them into kind of upcycling older items is a really good hobby because it's kind of like therapeutic as well, but you also have like, you know, an end result. So whether it's you put veg in it or whether you're just using it to put some plants in it, like sunflowers for the month of August, they just make me happy. So you can pick up like a sunflower that's already established in the Mm -hmm. garden centre and you could make like a nice kind of early autumn display in the garden and it's something to kind of like look at then in September when they've gone back to school as like you know I made that you know gives them the bit of joy. And Catherine you have some lovely images of the of the projects that you were uh, talking about there and it's on your website daintydressdiaries.com if anybody wants to have a look at that. Thank Just, you. You were mentioning there about the teenagers and obviously a lot of teenagers um, are interested in, in using gadgets and social media um, mm-hmm. and you were talking about maybe um, different uses for the computer like um, digital design is that something yeah, that so you can look into? I think absolutely so I think while teenagers get a hard time for being like on their phones so much it's mm. actually a really kind of creative area and probably something that we're going to see like in the future there's such a demand for you know digital skills but I think I try and encourage people I always say like the magic is in the making so if you can kind of take the idea from what you're seeing online but then actually go and practice it so I think sometimes we think creativity is just you know watercolor paints and a bit of sewing but like there's so many different things that kind of fall under like the creative umbrella like whether it's you know like creative writing music photography dance so I think I'm starting to see like a couple of like outdoor kind of like photography classes where people are going on like photography walks so if you do have a teenager that is like maybe they're obsessed with taking photos like maybe encourage them to kind of like go down like just develop like get some interest and to see if, if it's something they want to kind of maybe do like you can just do like a workshop there's also loads of stuff online on the likes of you know Skillshare and stuff and mm. um, like one thing that's become really popular I think on the back of like Bridgerton is like embroidery and needle skills has become really popular it's kind of a bit of a trend at the moment Um, but there's loads of like online classes you can do where you can like self-teach yourself or there might be someone in the family who is maybe of an older generation who can actually teach them so I think don't beat them up for being on their phones but I think just encourage them to actually practice what they're seeing because I think the deception of when you look at things online is these videos are so quick, they're snappy, and you're like, oh, I could totally do that. But actually, when you do go and actually try and make some, you're like, oh, actually, this is much harder than I thought. And it gets the brain kind of thinking. Um, and it's also a nice kind of mindful t- thing to kind of like put down the phone and I'm going to just make something and I can share it or I can keep it to myself, like just have kind of like fun with it. Brilliant. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM this morning. And if anybody is looking for any of those ideas or want to see what Catherine was talking about, her website is daintydressdiaries.com and there are some lovely ideas on that. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996 On Cork's 96FM. 
The Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. With localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed by Board Gosh Energy. The Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards are back. We want you to nominate places and services that are the best in Cork. The categories are Best Hairdresser, Best Beauty Salon, Best Bar, Best Barber, Best Breakfast, Best Coffee, Best Takeaway, Best Local Tradesperson, Best Gym, Best Restaurant, Best Workplace, Best Hotel, Best Burger. Go to 96FM.ie right now and nominate your favourite. The Best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed by Board Gosh Energy on Cork's 96FM. Now, um, before the break, I was telling you that I was going to be speaking to two brothers who've had a very different experience of the Leaving Cert. Daryl and Cormac Noonan have set up the Wolf Academy and they're looking for um, the concept of a Living Cert brought into schools, not just a leaving cert. Can I start first of all with Daryl? Daryl Newland, good morning. How are you doing, Fiona? How's things? I'm very well, I'm very well, and thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line of Course 96 FM this morning. Uh, Daryl, just tell me, first of all, about um, your own experience. When you were a teenager, you were involved in a very tragic accident. Yeah, so that's... Um, that's where kind of my mindset changed when I was in school. I was 14 and I was in school, bus crash, and five, five, of the, five of my schoolmates died. And I was very, one of them was when Lisa, I was very close with Lisa. Mm-hmm. And, um, and after that, I just, I didn't, I didn't know how to express that or how to, I didn't know how to deal with that whatsoever. Yeah. So what I did was I went completely in on myself, held in all those negative emotions I had. I had, I felt a lot of guilt as well because obviously I was still alive mm. um, and so many other people had been badly injured and I wasn't. So there was an awful amount of guilt there and I never expressed it. I was never really told to express it either. So after that then, I just developed a mindset when I was in school that life could just be taken away in a split second and it made me very impulsive. I wouldn't think about my actions. I wouldn't think about the consequences of any of my actions. And that obviously had a very bad effect as I was growing up and I found alcohol then and that was able to, the alcohol took me away. It took me away from those negative thoughts and emotions and I could actually just be someone else. It let me create this avatar of the person I wanted to be, not that sad little scared boy. Mm. So I obviously, I fell in love with that alcohol because it, it, it allowed me to do this. And that had terrible consequences for my family I was coming home and all those emotions that I'd be holding in, I was expressing them in anger and rage in that family home. Yeah. So eventually that led to me leaving. As soon as I finished school, I got on a plane, went off to Australia and I was gone from Ireland for about eight, nine years. Yeah. And eventually when I came home, that all them problems I had, they all followed me and they became worse and worse and worse because with the alcohol, the drugs, everything just, I was causing myself a lot more pain. I was causing other people a lot more pain and all this guilt was just building up from that, from back when I was 14. And it just, and I was never expressing it, so it was never coming out. And I ended up coming back to Ireland eight, nine years after I left and it was a treatment centre I was coming home to go into. And I went into treatment twice when I came home from Ireland for addiction, but I just, I hadn't hit my rock bottom yet. Mm. And I went back doing what I was doing all before until... Two years ago, just over two years ago, when I hit what I would call rock bottom, um, 
for me, it was my rock bottom. I just found myself, I was going on these drinking binges for a week, eight, nine days straight, and I'd be in a room by myself, just wallowing in my own misery, just not wanting to be alive. And there was one particular, this particular moment stands out. It was, I woke up on a Saturday morning, there was no off license open, and I had nothing to kill that pain, that torture that was in my head because I could not sit with myself for more than five minutes without having something or without being distracted by work or gym or something. And this went on for 13 years. And Darren, do you think that if you had had supports when you were a teenager, because that happened when, that crash happened when you were only 14, do you think that if you had supports in place then that you mightn't have gone down the avenue that you did? I definitely don't think it would have went as far as it did, no. Mm. Um, Now, I don't, at this point in my life, Everything have, I believe everything happened for a reason because I wouldn't be doing what myself and Cormac are doing now if I didn't have to go through all that. And just can I bring Cormac but, in there just yeah. when you mention him. Cormac, um, you had a very different attitude towards the, the Leaving Cert and your outcome after the Leaving Cert was very different to Daryl's. Yeah, so I was quite good in school or like I was quite focused and I was good at subjects like business and maths and I was always thinking about my career and all that so I was quite driven do well and I did well in the leaving cert then I went to Trinity and did a degree in management science and information systems and then after that I went on to work in Accenture in IT and I was kind of following the path that I thought I was supposed to follow and doing well and I got a really good job and everyone was like well done but then as soon as I got into the job I realised that I actually hated it Mm. and it was just that realisation. I put all those years of effort into something that wasn't really what I was truly passionate about. I was kind of just listening to other people's opinions and society and what was supposedly a good job and where I'd make money. But I was absolutely miserable in the job and I kind of had that moment as well of crisis of like, what do I do now? Like, where do I go from here? Mm. And I also realised that in years after I ended up um, quitting after a couple of years and travelling and getting to know who I was but I realised that I was achieving things to try and make myself feel worthy of love because I just never felt like I was good enough I felt I had to achieve things to be worthy and I think that's obviously it's very different to Daryl's story but kind of came from the same place of just not feeling good enough and trying to also maybe distract myself from those thoughts and I think that's the danger as well of just tying your identity Mm. to your grades or things like that. It must be a very difficult position to find yourself in where you've spent your whole teenage years studying really hard, getting that good leaving cert that we all aspire to at the end of school, Mm. going on to college, getting the dream job and then figuring out that this is not actually what I want. It must be just such a a difficult thing to get your head around. Yeah, it was a confusing time as well because like, my logical mind was trying to tell me, like, oh, no, this is a good job. You're making good money. Mm. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of handy. It was easy. I was living in Dublin, like, good quality of life. But the, there was, like, another part of me, like, my heart and my intuition was just telling me, like, you need to get out of here. This, I just felt kind of trapped, I suppose, by everything that was going on. Like, everyone around me was, like, kind of confirming that it was a good job or whatever, you know. But I just knew there was some inner part of me that just had to explore the world and discover who I was and get away from it all so um, it was a kind of difficult decision to make but 
in the end, as soon as I made it, it was actually so freeing and uh, I just knew I'd made the right decision to, to quit and follow my own path. So, Daryl, uh, why did you guys come up with the idea of a living cert and what is that? So, we just we were going into the schools doing talks and workshops and stuff with the students on like building mental resilience, day to day tips and routines that can help you optimize your life. And we just realized then that it needs to be in the schools more. Like, we need to. Um, equip the students to deal with life as well as just exams mm. because when they when you leave school there is there is they have started doing things in school on mental health and well-being but i think we think they definitely need to do more it needs to be more a lot more of a focus on it so that students are equipped when they leave school to deal with things like if they're feeling anxiety if they mm. get hit with a bout of depression Whatever it may be, it's all different for everyone. It's very individual, but just teaching them the tools, techniques to use when they're needed. Because it might not um, resonate with them all right now. They might not have hit some of those challenges that we're going to face in life until they leave school. But uh, if we equip them, if we equip the students, then they're much better prepared to deal with them. And Cormac, you guys are um, trying to get this concept into schools. Do you have a campaign running and what kind of reaction have you been getting? Yeah, so we work with um, a couple of other people. Yvonne Doherty, she's a mindset coach, and Tom Blade, um, he's like the head of production for us and our marketing. So um, Yvonne actually came up with the concept of the living cert, and then Tom created a video that went a bit viral there on Instagram. Um, that was like over a month ago now. And it's just a video kind of explaining what the living cert is and why we think it should be brought into schools. And we're also going to be working towards creating a gathering of people who are like in the space of education and well-being and in Ireland and from just different backgrounds and get different perspectives on what they believe should be involved in a living cert and we'll be doing that now I think come September we'll be looking into that more to get people in a room together come up with more ideas on how that should look so yeah we're just I suppose getting people from different backgrounds with different experiences and trying to come up with something that will really help young people and hopefully like the Department of Education or other people will want to get involved and help out and see see this kind of spread throughout the school system in Ireland. Cormac and Daryl Noonan from the Wolf Academy, thanks very much for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Now we see reported today that RT News and Current Affairs Managing Director John Williams has apologised for not linking recent weather events to climate change. He took to Twitter on Monday to apologise because they didn't link the heat wave that we had last week, the flooding in mainland Europe with climate change. But was he right or was he wrong? Cahal Nolan um, is a fellow climate change um, um, uh, with uh, he, sorry, he's a UCC, UCC PhD fellow climate change and he joins me on the line to discuss this. Uh, Cahal Nolan, good morning. A very good morning. Um, so with regards to, say, for example, the heat wave that we had last week, the, the flooding that we had in mainland Europe, are these extreme weather events linked to climate change? It's a straightforward question, you would imagine. It would 
demand a straightforward answer. But yeah. in this particular circumstances, the way that these studies work is in order to link something definitively to climate change, there must first be an attribution study that's completed. Now, in the case of the floods in Germany, that attribution case study has been completed at the moment. The results have not been in. However, all signs would seem to suggest that that particular event is indeed related to climate change or certainly it's been exacerbated by climate change. Hmm. With regards to the heat wave conditions that we've experienced over the last week, certainly would be a similar case in the sense that temperatures at present are 1.2 degrees Celsius higher than they would have been were not for anthropogenic climate change. They're, they're so you could say technically that the conditions that we've experienced, they have certainly been exacerbated by climate change. However, to say definitively without an attribution study that that particular event is linked directly to climate change, it's just a little bit premature. So when we're reporting these kinds of incidents, do you think then that we should be saying that they're linked to climate change or, or not? Because it hasn't been proved yet. I've been asked questions with regards to the particular heat wave that we just experienced and whether or not it's been related to climate change. As a climate scientist, I can only definitively say at the moment that the conditions that we've experienced, they would seem to fall under the category of what we would expect to see with regards to climate change and heat wave conditions in Ireland, in that heat wave conditions are expected to become more common each summer, and the duration and the severity of these events are expected to increase as well as we continue on throughout this century. So would, would it be a good idea if we highlighted that it's being investigated for climate change, kind of as a halfway house? To me, that would be the most I suppose, preferable solution at the moment in the sense that in, in regards to perhaps something that I would have just said, uh, that we can say at the moment that it seems to match up with the science and the projections in which we have with regards to climate change in Ireland, but that the definitive studies are still been, I suppose, concluded at the moment. And once they are concluded at that point, then it can be reported that, yes, last week's or last month's particular heat wave conditions they were related to climate change. Do we have to get more used to extreme weather events here? I think we do. I think we've seen over the past number of years, certainly going back to as far as, let's say, 2017-2018, we have seen, I suppose, exceptional weather conditions. If we think back, maybe it's perhaps events such as Hurricane Ophelia, perhaps Storm Emma, the heat wave conditions and the drought that we experienced in 2018, even last spring in the exceptionally dry, sunny conditions that we've had, and looking at the last last week's heat wave conditions, I think it, it really is a case that we have to become more aware of these extreme climate conditions that are becoming more prevalent on an annual basis. We were all basking in the heat last week. Obviously, this week there's been a bit of a break in that. Can we expect another heat wave before the end of the summer? <laughs> it's difficult to say at the moment, I suppose. With regards yeah. to the Irish meteorological summer, we still have the month of August to come so you would be hopeful perhaps that we would get some good conditions in that particular window but it's it's too uncertain at the moment to say for definite whether we'll have heat wave conditions or not. Okay okay but uh, just even for the week ahead now would you have any idea what we're facing into because I know at the start of this week I was praying that there wouldn't be rain because the children were going to an outdoor summer camp so thankfully the <laughs> rain didn't come until much later yesterday and it's fairly okay out there today. What about for the rest of the day and for the bank holiday weekend that's coming up? Absolutely. So pretty mixed conditions, I would say, certainly for the working week, in the sense that we have a northwesterly airflow across the country. Now, that will feed in some, I suppose, unstable air across parts of the country. So there will be some showers about at times. But in saying that, really from, I think, Wednesday onwards, there will be a good deal of dry conditions 
in between those scattered showers. And looking ahead towards the weekend, we can expect to see pretty okay weekend, I would say. Really, again, we'll still have that slack northwesterly airflow. So temperatures won't be anywhere near what they were over the course of the last seven to ten days. They'll be coming in at around about maybe 19 to 21, 22 degrees Celsius over the weekend and some pleasantly good sunny spells over the course of the bank holiday weekend too. So I suppose overall, certainly not heatwave conditions, but in terms of an Irish meteorological summer, Mm. pretty good conditions. So that's good news, obviously, for people who are staying here. But what about the people who've booked a foreign holiday to somewhere in Europe? Is it going to be uh, hot over there? It will be pretty mixed as well. So Europe, if we can imagine the map of Europe, it'll be split really as we go through the the remainder of this week and into the weekend in the sense that northern Europe, so anywhere north of the Alps, can expect to see, I suppose, pretty mixed conditions. There will be some heavy thundery downpours in these parts. Temperatures coming in around about average for the time of year, so anywhere between maybe 20 degrees to 25. South of the the Pyrenees, south of the Alps, so the more traditional Irish summer locations, let's say, Portugal, Spain, parts of Italy, Greece, these areas will again experience pretty hot conditions. Temperatures are around about 28 to 32 degrees Celsius. Wow. Yeah, it's under them for, but pretty good conditions overall. Brilliant, brilliant. And finally, before I let you go, do you think that um, more people are taking meteorology as a subject to study, given the fact that we have all of these strange and extreme weather conditions and we hear so much about the Greta Thunberg effect as well? So is it becoming a more popular subject to study for people? I would imagine so. I would uh, certainly, given the, I suppose, the coverage that we've seen on climate change issues over the course of the past, maybe let's say five years and the increase in which it's been reported with and even the, the I suppose the climate change movements and various activist groups which have come on board I suppose during that time as well there certainly will be expected to be an uptick in the number of people maybe studying meteorology or climatology for that case as well so I think that's a, a developing trend and certainly it would seem that it would continue over the course of the next couple of decades and really I suppose that can only be a good thing with regards to climate change and climate change science. Cahal Nolan, Ireland's Weather Channel, thank you very much for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM this morning. Now, we just hear there from the newsroom that it's understood that the COVID-19 vaccination programme is to be extended to include 12 to 15-year-olds. Um, I suppose that's going to be good news for some people. Um, maybe some people are... Um, uh, yeah, Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, so I suppose that's good news for a lot of people, a lot of parents who've been very anxious there um, this morning. Now, we've just been getting some callers in um, with regards to the two brothers that I spoke to, Cormac and um, oh, sorry, excuse me, Cormac and Daryl Noonan, who um, had different experiences of the leaving cert and different outcomes, and they're trying to get a living cert instead of a leaving cert um, brought into schools. Um, somebody has been in touch to say those two boys should be very proud of themselves very different situations but still struggles of their own it shows that no matter what position you're in you can still find yourself in tough times they are great and they were somebody else has uh, got a touch to say Fiona I love listening to you however yesterday you told the girl who got her passport to have Guinness and not Murphy's I forgot you were from Cavan until that moment <laughs> so thank you yes yes <laughs> apologies I should have said uh, Murphy's um, my husband given out to me about that as well. Um, keep your comments coming into us. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six zero eight three three ninety six ninety six ninety six. Now joining me on the line is Councillor Ted Tynan. Um, good morning, Councillor Tynan. 
Morning, Fiona. Um, and yeah. there's been an issue um, that's been of concern to people living in the Mayfield area. What's what's been happening? No, it concerns the um, scramblers, the scrambler bikes, um, and it's escalating. It's it's been on and off for the last number of years, but it's becoming more and more serious over the last two or three months. I have reports there on the 31st of May, the 13th of June. And give you one example of, um, and in fact, the, the people driving these scrambler bikes appear to be um, young teenagers, you know, 14, 16 years of age, that way. but they're known as scrambler bikes, and they're racing through the estates up in Mayfield. Just give you one example now where um, one was speeding along the footpath in Ballanderry Park. It um, it was on the footpath. It collided with um, a concrete railing in the front garden of a house, smashed through that concrete railing and bounced off the gable end hose of an adjoining, the gable end wall of an adjoining house. And the guy, it then spun across the road. The guy driving it got the bike going again and he was badly cut and torn but and drove off, you know, and... Um, another one then where a, a grandmother walking along the footpath with her eight-year-old grandson. Uh, she refused to get off the footpath for these um, young tugs, is all I can call them, um, and they're revving the bike. And, and you know, they can, they're quite noisy, revving and driving the, the bike intimidating and threateningly up against the woman. Her her grandchild started to cry. Then he was frightened by it, you know, and the noise the noise of the bike, and various episodes of that weekend after weekend, day after day, and last weekend it was exceptionally bad, where these two scrambler bikes were were driving at speed along footpaths in various parks in Mayfield, along Mount Brosnan, Avonmore Park, Glenamoy Lawn down into the other parts, then down to Liffey Park, um, Ballanderry Park. And it's only a matter of time, Fiona, before a child is mm-hmm. killed. And it's, a, and it's as serious as that. <clears throat> and also, Fiona, I would like to call in the Gardaí. It is their responsibility to make the, the, the place safe. And I'm now calling for the Gardaí to act immediately to stem this problem. It's going. There's going to be... Um, uh, there's going to be a fatality because, give you an example, in Avonmore Park, I was up there a couple of weeks ago where you could hear the motorbikes in the distance arriving on the scene. There was um, a number of parents ran out. One particular mother went out, brought her two children in from the green area who had been out there playing in the sun and all that mm. and beautiful weather we've had. And out of fear of her children, she brought them in home. It's an awful situation for people living in the area, isn't it? When you, as you say, yeah. we're in nice weather, children are off for the summer and yeah. parents have yeah. that concern that if they let them out on the green that some, that they could be involved in some serious kind of an accident. Well, that's exactly was the atmosphere I know last week mm. and Saturday, Sunday <clears throat> and driving at speed along the footpaths and they then uh, cut, uh, cut across the green areas as well. Children play in the grass, and particularly in the beautiful weather we've had for the last week or two, children are out in the greens. 
uh, playing with their bits and pieces, their toys, with their rug on the ground, you know. And um, along come these uh, noisy scrambler bikes and, and roaring at speed through the estate. And mm. Fiona, I can see it happening myself. I, there's going to be a very, very serious incident. And a child could may very well badly injure or killed, you know. So, yeah. and I know publicly calling the Gardaí in the Mayfield Garda station and across the city to get involved. It is particularly bad in the Mayfield area to stem this thing once and for all. And they can hide behind different laws or acts, but <clears throat> a motorbike speeding along a footpath is breaking the law at least. And um, Ted, Councillor Mick Nugent is also on the line and he agrees with you, but he says a new Department of Justice scheme to fold on ter- alternatives to anti-social behaviour. Um, uh, there, there was a scheme, but nothing has happened with that yet. Uh, Councillor Nugent, can you uh, give us a bit more information on that, please? Yeah, thanks, you all. I know I just look, I want to uh, agree with Ted there. It, it, it is a major issue. Um in, in communities that had been in the northwest of the of the city as well, um, affecting I suppose green pitches and green areas and that. Um, something I raised a council previously as well, and also at the joint police committee. And we did get some figures there that there has been some seizures in the last number of years of quads and scramblers. But more notably, um, apparently there's to be a scheme. Um, administered by the Department of Justice and the Guards, where they will look at alternatives um, to the misuse of quads and scramblers in, in communities where they're posing a problem. And that might be funding, you know, maybe for people who do use them um, and a location where they can use them or for training mm. or all in the effort, I suppose, um, if you wanted to get them off uh, public greens and roads. Um, you know, the Guards locally committed that they will avail of the scheme when it becomes um, available. I think it's Minister, um, is it James Brown, I think, is heading that up. Um, we haven't got further detail yet, but look, it might be a small light at the tunnel, like, you know, mm. um, probably, I'm sure probably want to eradicate uh, the issue, like, but no, it's just, um, when we get more detail of it, sure, we let you know. But uh, I just agree with Ted as well. Um, you know, as I said, it is an issue that um, kind of comes and goes. But as Ted outlines there, it's probably in Mayfield at the moment. And uh, and up to recently, has been an issue around, say, the northwest of the city as well. Something really does need to happen, or more needs to happen with it, um, with Fiona, I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I said there to Ted a few minutes ago, for any parent in particular who's living in this area and experiencing this, it must be really terrifying for them. And, you know, if anybody is experiencing this, if anybody is afraid that their child is going to be killed, maybe they could get in touch and let us know, 1850-715-996 or 083-396-9696. You can also um, email opinionline at 96fm.ie. Uh, Councillor McNugent, what would you say to the parents who are living in fear? I, I suppose I understand where, where, they, where they're coming from. You know, like we have an amenity there in Fairhill, the, uh, the Fairfield. It's very popular. Um, there's pitches there that are used by clubs and there's a walk around it. It's very popular. Um, obviously, we're trying to encourage people to get out, get physical exercise, and particularly um, during the pandemic, 
Unfortunately, at times you do you do have um, use of uh, quads and scramblers. So all we can say is we have to just keep highlighting it. Mm. And if there is a, if the scheme becomes uh, becomes available, perhaps it's something uh, that could be availed of. I think um, I think I think parents actually kids as well who actually use quads and scramblers or they buy them for the kids as well need to be you know, I suppose need to take on board as well. Um, yeah. You'd often see, you know, you'd see parents with kids and small class of scramblers and you wonder how, how wide uh, that is, like, you know, if it is supervised, um, you know, perhaps we just need somewhere that, you know, that they can be used safely maybe, but off the public roads and public green areas, um, Fiona, so hopefully mm-hmm. something might come, something might come of this in the next, in the, in the time ahead, like, you know. Councillor Ted Tynan and Councillor Mick Nugent, thank you for highlighting that issue. Now, both councillors doing great work, but I think until more parents speak out and shame the national government into making it a priority, nothing is going to happen. You can let us know your story, and we might come back to that tomorrow, 1850-715-996 or 0833-969696. Thanks a million to the team for helping out today, Wayne Hilton, Fergal Barry and Katie O'Keefe. We'll be back tomorrow. Have a good day.